0: Uh, if you're just joining us, we're continuing in our seven-week series on called Love Redeemed and, and this idea that we look at love and, and recognize that the world in a lot of ways has twisted and distorted our understanding of what love is and what it should look like, and we, our hope is uh, has been and continues to be that we're able to kind of wrestle back from the world based on Scripture and based on the heart of God and the instruction that we see here, particularly in what Paul is writing to the early church, the instruction that we see here on what it looks like to love and what healthy love and what God-like love is meant to look like. And so that's, that's where we've been these past several weeks, and we have a few weeks left in that series Uh, And and I want to begin by by just saying, you know, this morning, uh, we we, we spent the past three weeks in 1 Corinthians 13, and that's a challenging passage in and of itself. And we're just going to continue uh, to invite the Holy Spirit to tighten the screws um, because we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 this morning, uh, again at the hand of Paul writing to the church in Rome. Uh, I, I believe God's going to ask more of us than, than God has asked of us these past few weeks. Uh, so if the past few weeks have been difficult, uh, know that if you get frustrated or feel uh, convicted, it's not Vern; it's the Holy Spirit. So don't get mad at me. Um, it, it's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I'm, I'm grateful for this. And it, it reminded me that, that like to love well costs us something, right? And that's one of the things that's different than what the world tells us. The world says that you love in order to get something back. And yet what we see in Scripture and what we see exemplified in the life of Jesus is that love is costly. And and perhaps you don't ever get anything in return. Not in the way that we think. We see that in in the life of Christ and His willingness to give His life away. And we have to believe that, that He would have done it if only one person, if only one person said yes to what He was offering. And yet, praise God, that more than one did, because each of us, many of us, I should say, are here today because someone somewhere along the way said yes to that message and felt like it was important enough to share it with us. Praise God for that. But to love in the way that, that Christ shows us is costly for us. I mean, some of you have heard this story, but but I, I just, for me, it helps to, to frame uh, this in, in third grade, I was given uh, the opportunity, we as a class were given the opportunity to, uh, to be a part of the class play. And, you know, so naturally I said, yes, absolutely, I would love to be a part of the class play. What I didn't understand was that the class play, what the teacher meant was that the, the third grade class, like the, the grade is what she should have said. Because I thought I'm just going to have to stand up in front of my classmates and and perform and 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 be this character, and that that was easy for me. I used to pretend that I was a different superhero every day that I went to preschool. Wonderman, Wonder Woman, Superman, Batman, Robin—like I didn't discriminate. You know, one half or both of the Wonder Twins, uh, whatever. Like I just wanted to be a different superhero. So the thought of acting that that was fine, and really. Also, there was a girl in my class that I had a crush on. And, and so, any opportunity to try to impress her. Um, because the Valentine's, didn't, that didn't work out so well. Uh, and, and this, you know, like you, you have Valentine's that you, like, everyone makes a cute box or a bag. And you go and you stick Valentine's in, the, you know, in, in your classmates' you know, boxes when you get to school that day. And then there's time to open them. And, and I wrote on everyone's, your friend... Uh, Gresham. That's what I, I, my name is, Vernon Gresham. So you can call me Vern or Gresham. I'll answer to both. They're both my name, but Vern is a nickname that kind of stuck after high school. Uh, but so your friend Gresham, and 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 except for this one, this one girl in my class, I wrote love Gresham, thinking like I, I'm just I'm just conveying to her where I feel like you know I where we should land, and and I'm I'm so excited about this moment that she will open it because I think. It's like she's just gonna this that's it. I mean what how how could she not respond in you know, like reciprocate that love? So we're opening and, and I begin to like hear there's some some like murmuring and whispering, and I look over and she's got all of her friends crowded around her. But not in like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited that this boy professed his love for me. It's she's comparing her valentines to the other valentine, like their valentines that I had given them. And she comes up to me and she said, why did you write love on mine and your friend on theirs? I was devastated. I wanted to, I mean, I, I was like, you know, that was it. That was it. That She did not reciprocate my feelings. She did not feel even remotely the same way that I did. She liked some boy who was in another class. So, it comes, you know, it's, it's play time, and I'm thinking, look, I, I'm still, I still believe there's a chance. You know, I, I'm like, um, uh, you know, what's his name in Dumb and Dumber? Like, one in a million, and he's like, so you're saying there's a chance. You know, I'm, I, I still think there's a chance, and so I, I, am, I volunteer for the class play, and I'm excited about my one line that I have to give, and then the teacher calls me the night before and says, hey, so-and-so is sick, could you... Uh, take on this other role. I was like, sure. How many lines? Well, there's like 12 lines for this one. And I'm, this, I'm thinking, no, there's no way. There's no way that I can do this. So she reads them to me over the phone, and I'm writing them down, and I'm practicing, and I get up there, and I just bomb it. Absolutely, like, just made-up lines that I thought this character would say. <laughs> All because I wanted to impress this girl because my love for her was so deep. And I wanted to love her in response. There are times as followers of Christ when we are going to have to step into situations that are uncomfortable. There are times when it is going to cost us. It is going to wound us. There are times when more will be asked of us than we are prepared to offer. And there will be times when we do all of those things And we get nothing in response. And yet, the call for us is to continue, to continue to do the same, because in doing so, we are a reflection of Jesus. If you would, in honor of the reading of God's word, please stand. If you are able, if you're unable, in your hearts, let's honor God's word. Romans 12, beginning with verse 9, Paul writes, Love must be sincere. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Paul is writing to... Obviously, the church in Rome and the church in Rome that is a community of faith, a community of believers who are made up of, of Jewish converts to Christianity, but then also non-Jewish converts to Christianity. And, and there was a time after the, the church had been formed and it had existed for a while. This church came um, into existence pretty early on in Paul's ministry, and yet this is one of the last letters that Paul wrote. In fact, it is Paul's deep desire to be able to visit the church in Rome. He has such a heart for this church that is, that is kind of nestled down in or stuck down in, in the midst of what would have been the epitome of culture and cultural influence uh, at that time. Like Rome, remember, was kind of the superpower of the world at this time, uh, particularly in that part of the world. And so Paul understood that there were things that the church in Rome faced that he, he wanted to come and encourage them. He also felt like this: if, if, if we could strengthen this church, then this would be a great launching point for him to continue his ministry um, westward. And, and so this is, this is what Paul uh, in, intends, um, intends to do, and, and, and part of the reason that he's writing this letter is because um, after Emperor Claudius came to power, he invited, asked, forced the Jewish Christians to, to, leave, uh, to leave Rome, and then after a period of time, they were able to return. Well, they returned to a church that doesn't look much like the church that they left, and, and they, they realize and, and recognize and are bothered by the fact that there were some customs that they continued to retain uh, as being Jewish people, that those things were no longer a part of the life and the fabric of the church, and, and so there, there began to be some infighting and some division. I know that never happens in churches today. It was only isolated uh, to the church in Rome, uh, and I, I'm kidding, obviously, but for the for the Jewish Christians who were returning they had this idea of this is what church should look like based on their tradition and based on generations of teaching and and much of the ink that was that was spilled much of uh, what was written and much of even what was dealt with in uh, in Luke's account uh, in Acts of the early church there were some things that they had to decide wait are are we d- does being a Christ follower mean that we're we're freed into something, or do we continue to follow the law, or do these converts to Christianity, like do the men have to be circumcised? Like because we did, and, and that's so so they had some ideas of how you know what church should should look like, what it meant to be the people of God. And in a, an amazing way, Paul begins in chapter one and, and just lays out like th- hey, hey, this, this is who God is? This is what God has accomplished in the person of Jesus, and this is what it means for you as a people. Like the 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 thing that levels the playing field, the thing that connects and unites all of us is that we are broken people who are in desperate need of a savior. And and the law, which you, you know, Jewish Christians so revered, the law is important, but the law is not what is gonna save you. The law is what, what reveals to you the depth of your need. For a savior. Right? The law was important. The law revealed to the people of God, hey, as a people that I am rescuing out of captivity, I, I want you to to look and, and to live in a way that, that it's set apart and that is reflective of who I am. The law wasn't about God just being mean, right? Like you shouldn't have gotten yourselves into captivity in the first place. I've rescued you from captivity, now you have to pay the price by following all these laws that to us would seem like oppressive. God was just saying, no, I I want you to have an identity that is distinct from the rest of the world, because it is through you that I'm going to rescue the world. And and that was a promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis. You're going to be the father of a nation, and it is through you that the world will be blessed, not just this people group, but that the world will be blessed. So, So Paul up to this point in Romans is, is making sure that, that, like, hey, remember, this is what God has done. And then beginning in verse 12, he, he says, this is now what this should mean for the way that you live your, or in chapter 12, this is what you, what it should mean for the way that you live your life. Your life should be reflective of the fact that God has accomplished the impossible in the person of Jesus to make life possible for you. A life that's not based on your ability to keep rules and to follow the law, but a life life that is based solely on what Jesus accomplished on the cross and giving himself so that you might be forgiven for the times that you stepped outside of what God says was best for you. Because of that, because of what you have been given, because of this gift that you were offered, that you continue to be offered, this gift that none of us deserve, it should impact the way that you live your life. And so chapters 12 and 13 in particular, this is what Paul is focusing on. If we were to go back up and look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that is this unmerited favor, favor in your life, in view of God's mercy, To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There are so many ways, some subtle, some more overt, but so many ways That we as followers of Christ, that we as the church are allowing the patterns of the world to influence our understanding of what it means to be the people of God. And to that, Paul would say, Don't conform yourself to the pattern of this world. You are called to live in a way that is set apart. Now, thank goodness for us and thank goodness for the church in Rome in the same way that Paul did in 1 Corinthians 13. He didn't just say, hey, if love is not at the foundation of everything that you do, if love is not at the foundation of your exercising of these gifts, then then those things don't really matter, and then just left it at that for people to define for themselves what love is. Instead, Paul says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Be transformed. That means your life should begin to look different. Then Paul goes on to say, this is how your life looks different. Because Paul understands the human tendency because he himself is human. And he himself, if you look at Philippians chapter 3, is very honest about what he once thought was important. And the thing that Jesus rescued him from. I mean, he, he would say in, in that passage, I, I was the best of the best when it came to following God's law. So my, I felt it was so important that I was willing to persecute the church. And that's what he was doing when he encountered Jesus in a life-changing way on the Damascus Road. So everything that Paul does and everything he writes, every bit of his ministry is, is, hinges on that. His encounter with Jesus, understanding that he deserved death, but instead he was given life and a purpose beyond Elevating his, himself and his own status. So we jump down to verse 9. Love must be sincere. In some translations that reads, love must be without hypocrisy. And the Greek word that's used there for hypocrisy is the same word that, is, that was used in, um, in theater at that time to describe the masks that were worn. Like they didn't necessarily have the, you know, the costumes and the backdrops that we have to describe a scene and what is happening in a scene. And so actors would wear masks that displayed sadness or worry or, or anger or, uh, or you know, for whatever, it, whatever it is. That was the word used to describe those different masks that must be worn. And, and so Paul is saying love must be without a mask, meaning that you are to love in a way that is integritous. And the word that is used here for love, what do you think it is in the Greek? Agape. It's the first time in this letter to the church in Rome that, that Paul has used the word agape to describe anything other than the love that he describes that God has for us. So up until this point, that's how he has described the love of God, as agape. Right, this self-giving, sacrificial love. But here, he uses this uh, word agape that he has used to describe God's love to now describe the way that we are to love one another. Love must be without hypocrisy. What does that mean? It means you can't be nice to someone while they are face-to-face with you, and then the moment they walk out of the room, you start talking about them behind their backs. It means in the South, no more bless their heart. Right? If you know, you know. <laughs> Bless their heart. I love them, but I'm about to say something about them that is negative. And that's, how, that's the way we get away with it. It means we can't do that anymore. Now, the first, in, in many Bibles, it's broken up in, a, in paragraphs. So that's not the way it would have been written in the Greek, but verses 9 through 13, Paul is, is focusing specifically on the love within the family, that is, within the church. Love must be sincere. Love must be without hypocrisy. You can't pretend to love. It's not just about checking the box. You can't pretend to love someone and then treat them like garbage behind their back or malign them uh, behind their back. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Hate what is evil. How permissible are we or have we become with what is evil. We just allow it to slip in and allow it to dull us to the things that that God says are important and and allow it to dull us to, to really hearing and understanding this is what it looks like to be set apart. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Hold fast to the things of God that are good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another above yourselves. None of these things that, that Paul is instructing here in, in this chapter, we don't just stumble into this. You don't just stumble into honoring someone above yourself. This is, it's an active choice that you make. An active choice to elevate the status of someone before over elevating your own status. And, and the thing for, for many of us that's so difficult about that is that it just flies in the face of our flesh and our human nature, right? Our nature says it's about me, it's about mine, it's about what I can have, what I can gain, what I can possess for my enjoyment, for my f- fulfillment, for my elevation, my success. We see that in the very beginning, we see that as a result of, of sin even entering the world when you look at the relationship between Cain and Abel, right? The sons of Adam and Eve. The result of sin entering the world, one of them is broken relationship in humanity, fighting and clawing for what is ours. And Paul says, Nope, that's not what it looks like to be a reflection of Jesus in the world. You honor God one another above yourselves. You think about the people that Jesus honored. You think about the people that Jesus elevated that no one else wanted anything to do with when lepers were calling out unclean, unclean, because they couldn't be around anyone. In fact, they, they, were, they were meant to live on the outskirts of, of civilization, and yet when they had to be around people, they had to call out unclean, unclean, so people could run away. Well, guess what Jesus did when he encountered them? He didn't turn and run the other way. He went to them. He showed them that they matter. Who did Jesus love to have table fellowship with? Prostitutes, sinners, and tax collectors. I love how tax collectors gets their own category. (laughs) But these were people that would have been considered outside of the fellowship. They weren't deserving to sit at the same table as the people of God, and yet Jesus showed them worth by saying, No, you have a seat at my table. Who are we not honoring above ourselves that God might be calling us to honor? And remember, this is, this is just within the family of God. We haven't even gotten to dealing with those outside of the family. Verse 11 Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. It's important to take that sentence in its entirety. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I got that. I am on fire for the Lord. Watch me when I worship. You should hear me when I pray. Look over my shoulders. I'm reading scripture. Those things are all important. and Those things are absolutely an opportunity for our affection for God to be stirred. An opportunity for our focus to be fixed on God. Because all of this begins to fall apart when we take our eyes off of Jesus. That's why the author of Hebrews says, Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Don't worry about who is running next to you at your right or your left. I mean, notice them because it's probably good to have people running alongside you, but don't get so focused on what someone else is doing that you take your eyes off of Jesus. Because it all begins to fall apart when we do that. The Jewish Christians coming back to Rome had a problem because they had taken their eyes off of Jesus and they were more concerned with what their brothers and sisters were doing than with what Jesus was calling them to do. So it's not just about saying that you're on fire for the Lord or being able to stir up and, and offer some prayer that you know, just calls down the fire of, of heaven. It's about fixing your eyes on Jesus, keeping your enthusiasm for what? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Don't ever lack the zeal of serving. Don't ever lose your spiritual fervor in serving the Lord. We all know what it is, I, gosh, I hope, I hope you know what it is to have time off. From your work, as a student, as an athlete, we, know, we all know what it looks like to have time off, and we relish in that time off. Right? As an athlete, you look forward to an off-season, a time to rest, a time to recover. As a student, you look forward to break. You have a spring break coming up that I'm sure you are counting the days toward. For work, you plan those vacations and you work to that point when you're able to take vacation. Friends, there is never a time, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, there is never a moment in which you are not in service to the Lord. There's never a time when you are not on the clock. You are always in service to the Lord. And, and I, I think for many of us, that, that's a maybe a, a, a new... Concept or, or we tend to think of serving the Lord as I, well I showed up on Sunday morning and I make coffee or I helped you know get chairs set out or i 'm going on a mission trip this summer. Those things are absolutely a way to serve the Lord, but but we can 't allow again, this is where we allow culture to inform our understanding of what it means to be the people of god it 's not about just compartmentalizing well. Right now I'm serving, but then this afternoon or this evening when I get home and and my football team is not doing as well as I would like for them to do, in that moment, thank goodness I'm off the clock because I'm not going to look a whole lot like a Christian. Nope, even in that moment, you're, you're not off the clock. We are always, as Paul says in Colossians, in everything you do, do it as unto the Lord. And everything that you do, do it in such a way that's reflective of Jesus. Do it in such a way that you hope and you pray that there's something about the way that you do that thing that reveals something of who Jesus is to the people around you. Imagine what might begin to change about our lives if we understood, if we really took this in. There is never a time when I am not in service to the Lord. Because there's never a time in which He is not Lord. He doesn't cease to be Lord. He doesn't cease to be King of kings and Lord of lords. He does not cease to be on the throne. And as his people, then there is never a time when when we are not in service to him. What might begin to change about your life if you really start to live into that? What might begin to change about the way that you treat other people? What might begin to change about the way that you are an educator, the way that you are patient with and love that student who has asked you the same question for the 400th time? What might begin to change about the way that you are in your workplace and the way that you treat a coworker because you believe, you know what? They had an assignment to do. They didn't do it. It's gonna affect the rest of us. I'm gonna serve them to love them because there's probably something going on in that person's life that I don't even know about There's a weight that they are carrying there is a story that they have that is affecting them in the workplace there is a story that that student has that is affecting their ability to pay attention to you and to listen there is something going on in, in the life of that person that, that cut you off in traffic there's something going on in the life of that person that that, that mistreated you or chose not to tip you uh, well and you know when you when you were so faithful to bring them their food, what if, what if we chose to, to see the way that we respond in those situations reflective of the fact that we understand as followers of Christ, you know and I am always in service to the Lord. And He is able to take the way that I respond and use that. Because maybe, just maybe that person says, God, there's something different about them. I've been in this situation before and that was not the way that I was treated and they start to lean in and they start maybe to trust you. And they begin maybe to let you into what's going on in their lives. And they begin maybe to, to be thankful that there's someone who cares enough to treat them differently than the, the way the rest of the world seems to be treating them. And and maybe, just maybe, they're, they're willing to just say, hey, here's what what's going on. Here. Here's where I am. And you're able to say, yeah, you know what? I've, I've been in a similar place. Let me tell you, How I've been able to walk through it. Let me tell you about the person of Jesus who maybe didn't change my circumstances but gave me the ability to have peace in the midst of it. And it's changed my outlook on life. Which allows Paul then to go on and begin to talk about the way that we interact with the world around us. Because we are joyful in hope, because we are patient in affliction, because we are faithful in prayer, We then are able to go on verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Now, it's probably a lot easier for us to mourn with people who mourn than rejoice with people who are rejoicing. Especially if the person who is rejoicing got the raise that you felt like you deserved. Or got the thing that you felt like all I've ever wanted is that thing. Or it just seems like whatever that person touches turns to gold. what would it look like for us with the outside world? Because I think it, we can do that with people that we care about, right? And people that we would consider our family or our friends. But what about with the world around us? And have you ever just, like, celebrated someone who, for what like, you just are able to notice, like, hey, that, that was really a great thing that happened with that person, I don't always do it well, but I've tried to make it a practice. My oldest son is is playing basketball at the high school. And I've tried to make it a point when they lose a game to go up to the player on the other team that was just lights out and say, man, you, first of all, just tell him he's a handful. But then congratulate him on the game that he played because that kid had a heck of a night that's hard to do because I want to see my son and his team win rejoice with those who are rejoicing mourn with those who are mourning. maybe there are times you've been in the I I don't know maybe I'm the only person who still actually goes through the checkout line at the grocery store so maybe it's the person that brings your groceries out to you to your car but there are times when we're paying attention we notice there's something about that person you think man this person is having a day do you ever stop to just say hey are, are you okay? It just seems like there's something weighing on you. I'm a great listener if you want to share. And maybe they do because nobody's asked them. And maybe you can't fix that situation, but you could say hey would you mind if I would you mind if I pray with you? inherent in being followers of Christ is that we are going to disagree with so much of the world around us. And there are gonna be times, and and it is a season for for the church, there are times when the world disagrees with the church in ways that are very overt. But I believe that so often that person or those people are coming from a place where they've been hurt by the church. So what if we said, you know what, I, I'm going to, by the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, God, help me to paint for them maybe a different picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ than what they've experienced. So that when I am persecuted, when I am mistreated, I can bless those who are cursing me. I can choose something different. I can rejoice with those who are rejoicing. I can mourn with those who mourn. I can live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. He goes on to say, do not repay anyone for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You cannot control someone's response. The only thing that you can hope to control is the response that you have in a situation in which you disagree with someone or someone is coming at you for something. You can choose peace. Your job is not to control how someone responds. Your job is to make sure that that call to be at peace doesn't remain on your side of the fence. You can show peace in the face of adversity. You can show peace in the face of disagreement. You can show peace in the face of being mistreated, talked about, maligned, cussed at, whatever it is. Your choice can be peace. It's what we are shown in Jesus. It's what Jesus taught us to do in the Sermon on the Mount love your enemy, pray for them, serve them Jesus then reflected that when he was on the cross when he was being mistreated, when insults were being hurled at him he didn't say okay Father now that we've got them all stirred up go ahead bring the heat wipe them all out he didn't say you have three days to hide because I'm coming back to this joker and I'm going to find you. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. The ones who are driving the nails, forgive them. The ones who put the crown of thorns on his head, Father, forgive them. The ones who beat him within an inch of his life, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Who are we to choose any response other than that response? It doesn't mean that we don't call wrong what is wrong in the world. It doesn't mean that we don't fight against evil. It doesn't mean that we don't stand up and fight for good. But we are meant to do it in a way that is reflective of the person of Jesus and reflective of the self-giving love that he had even for those who were mistreating him. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge. God is the only one who gets to be judged. It's not us. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. I want to close with this. Paul is not giving them some new way to get back at people who have wronged them. Like the intention is not that you read this and think, "Oh, burning coals. That sounds awful." So if I feed them, it's gonna hurt them. If I treat them well, it's really gonna cause pain. The the language and the illustration in ancient Egypt, when someone experienced contrition over something that they did, they they put a cloth on their head for insulation and put a small tin with burning coals in it just to say, hey, I recognize that I messed up. I I am contrite over that. I recognize that I've done wrong and I want people to know that. When we choose to serve God rather than to attack, when we choose to love rather than to hate, there's something about your choice in that that reveals to something the, the brokenness in their life because it forces them to say, I, that's not the response that I thought I was gonna get. I, I came, I had gloves on, I was ready to go and yet that person didn't come at me, they chose to love me and to serve me. They even said they forgive me. I didn't ask to be forgiven. What is it about them that makes them choose that? Because to choose that response is to live into the freedom that Jesus makes possible. We know what it is to carry around the weight of unforgiveness. It is a shackle and a cage. But to choose forgiveness, to choose grace, to choose love, to choose to serve, to choose humility, is to choose freedom. And it's to choose a response that can transform the life of someone around you. these are the marks of a true follower of Christ. It's not an ideology. It's not a given political party. It is to remodel in your life and reflect in your life the person and the love of Jesus. The way that we do that is to remain connected to him. May we be a people who love each other well. May we be a people who love well outside of the family in such a way that people want to be a part of who God is and what God is doing.